Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Russia's war against the West continues as Moscow repositions forces in Ukraine for an onslaught in the eastern part of the country. Ukrainian forces fired two Neptune anti-ship missiles uh, that have sunk the Russian cruiser Moskva, which was built in 1979 in nearby Mykolaiv as the Slava or Glory, uh, sinking the Russian Black Sea Fleet's flagship that served as a command and control and air defense node. She's the biggest ship Lost in combat since May 1982, when HMS Conqueror sank the Argentine cruiser General Belgrano. In the wake of the attack, news reports hinted that Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu may have suffered a heart attack, but it's unclear whether it's a real one or a Soviet one uh, that may presage a purge of general and flag officers. Citing Europe's security environment has irrevocably changed on February 24 and making clear that Russia's wider goal is to reorder European security, Finland and Sweden are expected to pursue NATO membership with Moscow responding by threatening, as usual, to deploy nuclear weapons to the Baltics if either of the nations join the Atlantic Alliance. Czech tanks, Slovak S-300 air defense missile systems, plus British weapons like the Brimstone guided missile have been donated to Ukraine as President Biden has authorized another billion dollars in weaponry. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has met with top U.S. defense contractors uh, for uh, as asking their help to more quickly address Ukraine's needs. In Europe, however, there is concern that even leading nations are backsliding. Germany, Austria, Hungary are among those who want to keep buying cheap Russian energy, and Russian propaganda is having an impact with some 30% of the residents in Eastern Europe believing that the West started this war with Russia, as opposed to Russia starting this war with the West. In France, Marine Le Pen, an anti-EU and anti-EU and anti-NATO candidate with warm ties to Putin, is doing better than expected against French President Emmanuel Macron in a runoff that will happen in a week's time, a win there could have tectonic implications uh, for Europe and global security. Congress is out of session, which means one of our number, Michael Herson of American Defense International, will not be joining us today. But joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations, and our very own producer Chris Cervello, who is a retired United States Navy Commander, Public Affairs Officer, and co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm. And before we Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage at the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. And Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting. Uh, check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week, and tune in to the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Dove, you're the man in the budget seat this week, as uh, Iron Mike Herson is not uh, joining us, uh, because Congress is out of session, obviously, to celebrate Passover and Easter. And a quick programming note, we will uh, not be having the business report this Sunday, 
uh, in commemoration of Easter and to give our team and our audience a little bit of a break, but we'll be back with that program uh, the following uh, Sunday. Uh, Dove, Michael made news uh, that the budget could grow by as much as $100 billion in the private conversations that he's been having. Uh, any budget news over the past week that caught your attention that we have to bring the audience up to speed on before we move to the conversation about uh, Russia, Ukraine? Uh, yes, but first, um, you mentioned Passover Easter, so I want to wish all our Muslim listeners uh, Ramadan Karim. Um, <clears throat> on well the, well uh, said, Dove. Thank you very, very much. <clears throat> and a terrible omission on my part. Go ahead. Um, the big story, of course, is the 8.5% uh, inflation, the highest since, I think, 82, maybe even earlier. What that means is that if Congress simply adds $40 billion, like it did this past year, it's not going to have any real growth. And I think that if inflation continues uh, at this pace, then uh, Mike Gerson's prediction of a $100 billion add-on may well be correct if you want to see both inflation covered and growth in defense spending, which I think everybody now feels has to take place in real terms simply because of what Putin is up to. Um, I, uh, I, I, would, uh, I would agree with you uh, that that is uh, important for no other, you know, right? I mean, the inflation does eat up uh, a lot of the budget, as we've discussed for some time, although uh, Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord has pointed out, look, I mean, some of our things are on longer term contracts, right? So we're not as susceptible to inflation as the rest of the economy is, but it's, it's, still, uh, it's still a reality and is, is, is going to uh, take a lot of buying power away. Uh, Chris, well, well, look, Mike, Mike, go ahead. Mike is a terrific comptroller and, and he's absolutely right. On the other hand, the more we're going to have to spend on operations and maintenance, that's near term and that will be hit big time by inflation. Uh, the other thing is it depends really on whether we start to accelerate contracts. Um, which if we do, because a lot of people want to get past the so-called valley of death, that also will drive up costs. So Mike is right, technically, he's a technical, he's technically brilliant. But on the other hand, the problem is really there. Uh, I, uh, I would agree with you that all of those are dynamic factors in this. Chris, I want to bring you into the conversation uh, because we've discussed this inc uh, increase on a number of programs over the, over the past week, and you've been talking to folks as well. And there is a little bit of concern on how the department would actually spend it and whether more money would be helpful or not. This is a theme uh, that Dove and Gordon Adams, uh, Dr. Gordon Adams, uh, who uh, was a longtime regular on the program, also have discussed, right, that actually being a little bit more controlled with defense spending might lead to better outcomes. What's your sense in terms of how folks in, in, in the building and those who have a more critical eye are looking at this? First of all, I mean, I, I would say that I, as somebody that was in uniform for two decades and worked for a long time in the Pentagon at, at the action officer level, I, I'm not sure that just simply adding more money is going to get you the capability you, you need. That, that's my concern. Dove's point about accelerating the crossing of the valley of death, I think is a very important one. Um, and, and so that's what they, I think when the services work with the Hill, that's what they need to figure out. Is this just more of the same old, same old that we would be purchasing? Or are we actually going to be thoughtful? And are we going to give the, um, you know, make the appropriations and give the authorities to 
cross that valley of death in a way that gets us both short-term and long-term um, capability and capacity. On the conversations that I had this week, I mean, some of the folks that I talked to that are still in the Navy are concerned that you know th this is being portrayed as a um, you know as a as a missile tube argument, right? And that where the Navy is getting beat on for getting rid of cruisers that have you know, tube life left the idea that you could, you know, have these cruisers and that you would, you'd be able to use the, the weapons in those missile tubes to either, you know, deter, uh, adversaries or, you know, God forbid, um, you, you know, in a conflict strike back or, or strike first, their kind of head scratch is, is, Hey, tubes are great, but we don't have the stuff to put in those tubes. We don't have missiles. And their point is, Hey, that's why the Pentagon was prioritize, or that's why the administration was prioritizing purchasing um, munitions so that, it, you know, the tubes that we do have left after we um, divest to invest um, are full and that they're the, the latest and greatest. And it's not clear to them and really to me that if we simply threw more money at the that problem right now by keeping the cruisers, keeping the tubes, that we would be able to speed up the process of adding missiles to those tubes. So it's a little bit at least in the Navy side, a little bit more complicated than simply, you know, throwing more money at the problem. Um, and this gets to your point that you've talked about for years, that we may be much further behind the problem than we're willing to admit. Uh, in, in, indeed. And, and to me, uh, part of the problem here is, you know, we, we were buying the wrong kinds of platforms, which was sapping resources uh, from munitions, for example, right? I mean, so we have a lot of tubes. We don't have enough stuff to put in some of these tubes, which to me is 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 just b bizarre and and absurd. Uh, Patrick, you've uh, had a week to take a look uh, at uh, the budget uh, documents, uh, as well as to talk to our allies and partners. Any greater granularity, uh, especially in unfunded priorities lists and what they would mean uh, for Pacific capabilities or any other budget observation you have as somebody who, uh, you know, was, was a staffer up on the Hill and, uh, you know, does enjoy a good budget read as much as the next man. Well, I do enjoy a good budget read, but I'm not going to be a wonk here. I'd rather be a, a strategist and ask five questions about the budget. One of them is whether uh, we'll be able to project the firepower that we need to, to maintain deterrence uh, throughout this decade. And I think the answer is no, not yet. Um, secondly, whether we have the logistics to project uh, the speed and um, level of capability we wish in a variety of contingencies throughout this vast Indo-Pacific, and the answer is clearly not. Um, so whether that's expeditionary logistics or other uh, ways to sustain forward presence in operations in a crisis or in conflict, um, I think we need to look more at spending uh, in that kind of uh, serious capability. Um, thirdly, uh, you know, do we have the defense industrial capacity to do more than stamp out arms uh, and ships in peacetime? And the answer, again, is uh, definitely not. Um, fourth, can we secure our communications, especially in an era when the Chinese are making strides in quantum uh, communications? They're, they're providing secure communications right now, uh, increasingly, uh, and ours are, all of our gear uh, is susceptible and vulnerable. And then finally, can we do more to build partner capacity, whether it's helping the Indians wean them off of Russian hardware, um, uh, help Taiwan um, build up the kind of trilateral cooperation among, say, Japan, Australia, and the United States that we need to help in the Pacific Islands, as well as in Southeast Asia, uh, including 
the Philippines after the uh, May election, where we'll want to move forward on the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. All of these are five strategic questions that I think point to uh, budget shortfalls. We can't fund everything, but I think it points to the areas we ought to be debating about if we add more money, how do we help address some of these strategic questions? Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and one of the questions that nobody, I think, has answered yet is um, we want to be more distributed over a broader area. But ultimately, the question is, what would these forces distributed over these areas give you effectively? They're each uh, a logistical challenge uh, in their own right. I mean, why did we prefer ships? Because they do put people and weapons and sustainability someplace pretty quickly. Airplanes allow you to do that as well. But once you put physical troops on the ground in these sort of penny packet areas, I, I'm sort of curious what this agile basing gets you and how they don't end up becoming targeted to long range uh, area denial systems, for example, that the Chinese had. And your command and control point, uh, Patrick, I think is spot on the mark, right? I mean, the Chinese are making progress. I would never bet against the United States in developing this technology. Uh, clearly, we are demonstrating a considerable amount of capability around the world in cyber, uh, as well as some that is uh, evident, uh, even though nobody wants to really discuss it in, in, in Ukraine. Um, let me uh, shift uh, gears to asking uh, about this, uh, where we are in this crisis. Jim, thanks very, very much for uh, joining us. It's great to have you back on the program. Uh, and it is a very important week, right? Boris Johnson visited Kiev uh, last weekend, promising uh, more weapons. The Czechs, uh, Slovaks have stepped up. The United States is steadily uh, doing more, uh, not just uh, monetarily, but of course the, the meeting uh, that uh, the uh, defense secretary had with uh, the top uh, defense CEOs. Uh, I should point out that Dove has written a great piece in The Hill. The Biden administration must do more to meet Ukraine's urgent military needs, and I'll let him discuss that in a moment. But there is this concern that Germany, Austria, and Hungary are, are adamant about continuing to buy cheap uh, Russian energy. They look at that as uh, the key to their uh, industrial and economic uh, health. Worse, there are concerns that actually a lot of countries are slow rolling help, including Germany, right? The nation that said, I'm going to spend 100 billion euros more. Uh, Olaf Scholz's announcement that caught his, his own coalition off guard. It, it's as if they all signed up to help Ukraine, expecting a short war to be able to say we helped without really doing anything ultimately and then getting back to normal. Uh, now they're faced with the prospect of a long, brutal war that includes war crimes that makes it very hard for them to cooperate with Russia. At the same time, they wanna get back to normal. So it's a sense that our European allies and partners are, are sort of trapped. Are Europeans hanging firm or are they going to fold? Well, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great question, Vago. And, and I would say that we can't look on Germany as being like all the other allies as well. Each ally, depends on who you talk to, but each ally um, is being impacted by Ukraine in different ways. I mean, look at Sweden and Finland. Um, particularly Finland is leading the charge and dragging the Swedes along to join NATO. So you've got that kind of, of uh, response to what's happening in Ukraine. And then on the other end, you've got Hungary, uh, as well as Greece, uh, which has announced it's not going to provide any more assistance uh, to Ukraine, uh, not wanting to be a co-conspirator, if you will. Uh, Hungarians, of course, have said that with Orban. So you've got this range. The Germans, though, I think are getting the most attention. And as you rightly point out, they uh, Olaf Scholz came in and delighted all of us uh, early on by saying that they were going to put more money into defense up to the 2%. 
the, uh, the, the money they were going to infuse into the military budget, et cetera, et cetera. Nord Stream 2 went away. I mean, a great move. And then um, some slow rolling uh, and continued slow rolling, whether it's on the energy side or whether it's on the providing of military assistance. A slow rolling on tanks, uh, yet to be a, a decision there. His own uh, minister, uh, his own foreign minister and minister of defense have been, uh, particularly the foreign minister, quite critical uh, of, of Olaf Schultz saying, you've got to make a decision. We need to be doing these things. And she's from the Green Party. So the coalition there is internally in lots of stress about not just providing um, the, the military assistance that was promised and was really needed, but also in terms of energy, this is where the rubber meets the road uh, within the European Union. There's quite a head of steam building up in the European Commission to begin an uh, energy ban uh, in terms of Russia. Uh, and there's some nations that are right behind it, uh, including moving to renewables, uh, you know, increasing LNG, trying to deal with uh, not having that Russian gas come in. Each nation trying to deal with that time when that ban comes into effect. But it's the Germans uh, more than anyone that are slow rolling, saying let's do a study. Uh, a German, a German uh, foreign ministry, I think it was no, or the finance minister came out with a study saying that if this would cause an, a recession potentially in Germany if they had a ban. Uh, and so they're trying to have it both ways uh, there in Berlin, and it's looking bad, and it's and it's going to have certainly uh, major impacts on the uh, coalition, but also how we all look on Germany from the outside. Uh, you know, we, we can't believe this, this swing back and forth as they wrestle with um, what potentially is, is a huge undertaking for Germany. I think we have to say up front that this culture change that was kind of announced uh, is, is a big shift without any preparation of the German population, uh, uh, the German pop political body as well. Uh, it's something they're all wrestling with. And there's this, also this, this thing about the German-Russian relationship anyway, whether it comes out of uh, the World War II experience or whatever it is, there is a substantial part of Germany that does look kindly on Russia and, and has ties in Russia. And now they find themselves um, in a place where they're opposing what Russia is doing uh, and they don't feel real comfortable about it. So Germany is, is just, it's, in a, it's not in a good place right now. At least it's not where we thought they were going to be right. a month or so ago after Scholz gave that speech. But, but, but Germany is Germany uh, and the rest of the alliance you know, you're going to see different flavors there. But right now, in terms of the bottom line, I think the alliance is, is, is sticking together pretty much. Uh, I think uh, Biden is still able to lead the nations. Um, and I think if the fighting gets as bad as certainly it's going to get uh, and more and more war crimes are uncovered, uh, I think that's going to make it hard for any fence sitters uh, to stay on that fence as they uh, uncover more mass graves uh, and, and people having been killed. Um, I, I find uh, the information dynamic on this also uh, fascinating, right? Right as we seem to be making inroads in Russia to try to get more news to more Russians, the Russians are proving to be successful in the counter-information uh, narrative. And I want to get uh, Chris's sense on that in a, in a, in a minute. But Jim, uh, you know, you worked these issues for eight years in, in the administration uh, during the Obama administration as, as the person who was the punching bag uh, in uh, the Pentagon uh, for some of this. Europe is changing very rapidly, right? I mean, we, we just uh, discussed uh, Finland and Sweden, and I thought it was incredibly important how both of the countries said February 24 was an inflection point. 
but then also said, and oh, by the way, Russia's intentions go far beyond attacking uh, Ukraine, right? We have a tendency of calling this Russia's Ukraine war, Russia's attack or invasion of Ukraine, as opposed to saying it's really Russia's uh, war against the West uh, in in many uh, respects, and indeed against the United States, right? Putin would, you know, as a as a jujitsu aficionado, would like to be able to turn this tension over sanctions, et cetera, to drive the United States out of Europe and thereby be able to uh, execute his own plans. Talk to us about the monumentality of what we're seeing with Finland and Sweden, two nations. Uh, it's not fair to call them neutral because they're both EU members, uh, and that's not fair. There's Article 42 uh, that guys like Carl Bildt would tell you is, is as strong, if not stronger, than Article 5. Um, and then what's happening in France? Because here we have an anti-Europe anti-NATO, pro-Russian candidate against a pro-EU, pro-NATO, uh, tough on China, tough on, on Russia president, right? Talk to us about this dynamic and what all of it means in terms of the outlook for European security. Well, I think it just goes to show that when people talk about Europe this and Europe that, that's really a misnomer <laughs> because it's really who you who do you talk to? I mean, the both the cases you, you talk about, the Nordic case, if you will, and then the French case, there's some big things happening in both areas, but for different reasons. And just to start with France, um, you know, it's uh, Le Pen and, uh, and Macron have, they've matched up before, as you know. Um, and the, uh, it's, it's much closer now than, than it was a few years ago when they had their second round matchup. But what's happening here actually has more similarity with the United States uh, than it does uh, with the Nordics or something else that's, that's Europe. This, you know, they're going through culture wars here too. Um, identity politics, uh, anti-immigration, uh, Macron being seen as uh, representing the rich and Le Pen is representing the underserved and marginalized. You know, a lot of the rhetoric you hear on both sides, you could, you could hear coming from the United States too. And so what we're seeing here is you rightly point out quite a crossroads. Uh, when it comes to foreign policy, which is not really on the on the docket here in France, for here it's more, it's more inflation, it's high cost of living, the identity politics that I mentioned. But in terms of where they stand on foreign policy, it's pretty stark. Uh, and um, you know, we all made uh, assumptions about Trump when he was elected that, as much as he disparaged NATO and this type of thing, we didn't think he'd really act on it. Well, people are talking about Le Pen that way right now too, saying if she squeaks by Macron, would she really? Uh, begin to try to pull France out, not just of NATO, but the EU. She said those kinds of things in the past. She wanted to leave the Eurozone. She's been close to Putin, all of these things. People, you know, she remade herself over the past few years into something that, into a candidate that was less extreme, at least publicly, uh, and much more focused on pocketbook issues. But if she were to win, would we in fact see the veil ripped off and a Le Pen that's going to really turn France into a country that we wouldn't recognize in terms of foreign policy. With Macron though, he's gonna, he is trying to appeal to the liberal party, uh, Melanchron who had lost this, she's, he's gonna try for his, uh, his uh, voters who are more apathetic, they don't want Macron. I mean, I won't dig into deeper into this French stuff, but, but really the politics that we're seeing here are more, it's been there for a while, it's been brewing for a long time. It's not really Ukraine oriented. And it looks more like the U.S. than anything else. But on the Nordic side, that is Ukraine. Uh, that's that's with the particularly for the Finns, uh, seeing oh my God, uh, you know, you know, I, you you hear the Balts talk more about well we could be next. 
more than you hear Finns talking about that. But obviously, with the um, with this uh, invasion, the Finns, uh, very practical people, said uh, we we've got to jump through this window while while it's open. We live in a dangerous neighborhood with a dangerous neighbor, and so they have moved more quickly than I have seen them move on anything. Uh, and they're going to bring the Swedes along. The Swedes, they're, they're a bit slower on this. They want to go through a process because of their internal politics. The, SD, the, the Social Democrats there uh, in Stockholm who run things are, this, is, this change is too quick for them. They're wrestling with it. But all the polls in both countries and the political parties in both countries are all heading uh, you know, very quickly towards that NATO camp. So I think the, after some, you know, some hand-holding there, behind closed doors in Stockholm, I think the Swedes will move, uh, move along as well, right behind the Finns. And that is historic. I've worked Finland since 1990, Finland and Sweden. I've worked those Nordic countries since the end of the Cold War. And I, they call me all the time still. I, I, we just sit there and can't believe what we're seeing. Uh, and it was driven, accelerated by, by, by Ukraine. So yes, big things uh, across uh, the continent here uh, and within the EU. Um, and uh, let me uh, just uh, one, one more question, and I should uh, tell the audience that if you want to tune into an absolutely fascinating uh, press conference, check out the one with Sana Marin, uh, Finland's prime minister, and Magdalena uh, Andersson, uh, and was really, really a, a fascinating and, and sort of uh, a conversation. Um, uh, uh, Jim, there are those who say, uh, you know, the, the, there are a lot of risks associated with this, uh, with Finland's entry uh, into NATO. The contact surface grows, by, you know, doubles, right? Given the 810 mile uh, border Finland shares uh, with Russia, the Russians have said we're going to deploy nuclear weapons to the Baltics if, if that happens. What, what are the reasons why the alliance should allow Finland and Sweden to join, right? And, and there could be a veto, right? I mean, Viktor Orban uh, you know, distance himself only so far as was necessary in order to win now that he's won office for another five years and, and will continue to dismantle Hungarian democracy, he could veto uh, entry of either one of these uh, countries uh, on Putin's behalf. What, what is the advantage for the alliance to allow these two nations to, to join? Well, first, first, let me address this, uh, this thing about the nuclear weapons uh, that the uh, that these Russians said that they need to, um, quote unquote, move into the Baltic and that the Baltic will no longer be a nuclear free zone and, and that this is going to have to happen if if those two countries join and to, to balance things out. You know, they're t- he's talking about moving them into Kaliningrad. And of course, everyone has, has assumed they've had nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad for years. In fact, someone dated it back to the uh, the reset that was done in the first Obama administration was when they first did it. And they have had a scander missiles in there as well, which have a, a range and a capability to carry nuclear weapons. So so this isn't something new. And, and this is something that uh, that I think the Russians feel the Nordic countries are particularly susceptible to because it's nuclear. It's scary. Uh, these two nations have been militarily not aligned uh, you know, over the past 20 years or so. So it's something that they feel would have a resonance in Helsinki and Stockholm. I don't think it will at all. Uh, These two countries are used to dealing with misinformation, used to dealing with Russians uh, and nuclear saber rattling. Uh, So they've, and the Russians have said things like this before. I think they said it to the Danes a few years ago. So, so this, it's a lot of crap. Number one, number two is, um, you know, if the, 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 there's the two areas that NATO would gain uh, from having these countries come in is one politically, 
having uh, Danes, uh, I mean, having Swedes and Finns at the table at the NAC working on NATO issues would be wonderful. These are these are very competent, great, wonderful, practical, uh, smart uh, countries coming in, and we, you need that around the table just to deal with problems. And they bring in a great ability to work with other nations. I mean, I can't say enough about the political side and what they would add. Uh, to NATO there. Secondly, in terms of military, I know and was has my fingerprints on a lot of the uh, military systems both countries have. And uh, there is rare to find an ally that has come into the alliance as well prepared and interoperable as these two are. So there's just not a, a, an issue there. And the final thing is, and I think this is what if someone is spreading those kinds of views that they're, they're trying to say that this they're going to come in and be a flashpoint for Russia. They're going to be targeted by Russia. They're going to bring um, the you know NATO into conflict with Russia. That's just a load of crap. Uh, and uh, there's no there's no reason why these countries should do that any more than anybody else. Also, these countries, at least over the past 200 years, don't have a history of being aggressive. You know, it's not like you're bringing in uh, right. you know uh, uh, Hitler's Germany or something. I mean, this is this is these countries are uh, known to be upright, stand-up nations internationally as Europeanists and within the EU. Uh, they bring stability with them. Uh, they are not a threat to Russia and Russia has acknowledged that. Uh, so I, I just think that people who wanna raise that specter really don't know what they're talking about. Um, I, I should uh, point out, uh, as we have this conversation, the Daily Mail is uh, reporting uh, that there are fears nuclear missiles sank uh, uh, aboard uh, Moskva, uh, Moskva uh, killing uh, 452 of its 510-man uh, uh, crew, and that a top admiral has been arrested after the cruiser was hit by a Ukrainian missile. Uh, the Biden administration has been instrumental in Ukraine's uh, defense. It's been ramping up aid now to artillery, helicopters, uh, and war capabilities. Uh, there's a lot of cyber and other electromagnetic capabilities uh, we've been helping, including space-based assets that we've been helping um, the Ukrainians with. Defense Secretary Austin took an extraordinary step of convening the top U.S. defense executives to get their help to quickly develop capabilities Ukraine uh, needs to defend itself in the uh, fight uh, ahead. We have been trying, or at least the administration has been trying to do this by saying we're not going to provoke World War III, but we are going, you know, and trying to make it appear that the help we're giving is sort of javelins and stingers. We've well crossed those thresholds. And at what point does it become causes belli for Putin? Everybody was worried about Putin lashing out, whereas now folks are much more open Czechs sending tanks, Slovaks sending us 300s, Brits sending brimstone, right? The, the bar keeps going up and the administration, in my view, is, is doing the same maneuver Russia does. It keeps moving the goal lines and the Ukrainians keep getting more and more aid. What are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? What more has to be done? Because you make a case that we have to do more. Well, yes. Let me first say that uh, Putin has just threatened uh unforeseen consequences apparently is the term if we keep on sending more and more offensive oriented systems now he hasn't defined what they are and that may be as empty a threat as what jim was just describing with respect to kaliningrad um my concern uh, which i wrote about is not that we're not sending stuff we're sending more and more stuff and we're sending newer stuff that we didn't before the problem is we're we're starting to hear people say, look, you're running down stocks. 
how much can you keep on sending? And and I recall when I was uh, coordinating the supply of the British in 1982 uh, on Weinberger's orders, um, I basically would tell people who made that argument to me, including four stars, go, go argue with Weinberger. And that was the end of it. We ran down our stocks. Weinberger said, give the Brits every single thing they need in terms of missiles, in terms of radios, in terms of all kinds of stuff. Not talking about aircraft carriers here. We could do the same. We could go to three ships a day, by the way, 24 seven uh, and ramp up quickly if we need to backfill. What worries me is that right. we will be sending more and we will be sending more newer stuff that we haven't before, but not to the degree the Ukrainians need. Now, some people are saying, oh, we're already overstuffing them with material. I don't believe that. This war is intensive. You use up a lot more stock than you ever thought you would in any kind of intense war. This war is longer than people thought. And so I would argue that we need to do more. And if Mr. Putin wants to threaten unforeseen consequences, well, again, we need to be very, very careful not to deter ourselves. Talking about World War III doesn't do very much at all. I would also reinforce one point that you made in passing, uh, which was about uh, the Finns and the Swedes coming in. And I've been going to Finland and Sweden since the 70s, and I'm a member of a Swedish organization. The, the problem is very much Greece and Hungary. Either of those two could veto entry. And there will be tremendous pressure on our part on Orban, but tremendous pressure on Putin's part on Orban. So this is not necessarily a done deal. If they come in, uh, Jim laid it all out. The, it would be terrific for NATO, terrific for the West, and frankly, terrific for the United States, which has moved much more closely to both of them over the years. But it ain't a done deal. Uh, I would uh, I would uh, agree. And again, I mean, this is the problem by allowing autocrats to metastasize even in your own alliance in, in the EU and turn a blind eye to it because then it eventually becomes a problem. And then they can hold you hostage and say, well, I'll just host Russian troops, in which case maybe you should force Hungary to make that choice. And you don't get to benefit from access to a Western economy. If you want a second world economy, God bless you. And uh, Victor, you know, have at it. That's what he's turning Hungary into anyway, uh, unfortunately, which is uh, what is so problematic about this. Um, Patrick, uh, bring us up to speed on what's happening in Asia, right? Because the world has been focused on Russia, 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 Ukraine, 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 Europe, Europe, Europe. And yet, strangely, China, China, China keeps marching on. I mean, obviously helping the Russians, but trying to do it in as clandestine and as quiet a way as they as they can, while avoiding any sort of public declaration uh, um, that could potentially get them in trouble with the United States. Where, where are we and what's Beijing up to? Well, Vaga, let me start with the news that China has now transferred um, a medium range anti-air missile system to Serbia uh, this week. This is part of a, a 2020 deal that they made uh, selling armed drones as well as this new uh, medium-range anti-air missile system, uh, the HQ-22, uh, which is the FK-3 when it's for export. Um, uh, and this is interesting because it was transferred on six uh, Y-20 heavy airlift planes that went from um, uh, Kefong uh, Air Base in, in, in China, about 400 miles uh, south of Beijing, um, to uh, Azerbaijan, to Baku, uh, to Istanbul, Turkey, uh, and then to Belgrade. 
Now, if you look at those distances and how that's been transported, it's really captured the attention of folks in Canberra, um, because this is exactly the kind of logistics and heavy lift that China's building um, that could use some of these facilities and access points that they're putting money into, including uh, most controversially right now, the Solomon Islands, where uh, White House uh, Indo-Pacific czar Kirk Campbell, along with Assistant Secretary of State Dan Crittenbrink, are due to visit uh, in part to uh, try to convince uh, the government there not to go ahead with that agreed framework uh, deal that could give basing to the Chinese uh, in the Solomon Islands, which is a geographically significant area, not just historically, but potentially in the future, uh, especially if you're a country like Australia or you're thinking about U.S. or U.S., Japan and Australian um, uh, uh, exercises and in, in basing uh, down in Australia. Um, so China is uh, not only involved in very much uh, the war in Ukraine, in effect, uh, by this transfer, <clears throat> but it is uh, fo focusing on its maritime capability, its space capability, its high-tech capability. Xi Jinping has been off in Hainan Island, uh, illustrating all three of those things just at the same week when the Defense Intelligence Agency has come out with a, a new report all about uh, space capabilities of potential adversaries and highlighting the fact that China is the one that has grown exponentially even in the last three years in terms of, for instance, ISR capabilities from space. Um, I think you have um, clearly uh, China still worried about the economy and society with uh, the virus policing in Shanghai with 25 million people locked down uh, is seen as a worse problem than the COVID uh, deaths. Um, and you can you can visit uh, and do doom scrolling on, uh, you know, on the Internet and find uh, many instances, even in uh, uh, sort of in, from China of these uh, epidemic police, uh, uh, you know, getting out of hand and fighting uh, local residents. In fact, taking over residencies and saying you are now a quarantine center and we're kicking you out. Um, and it's right. it's it's quite violent. Um, I think. Um, there's a military exercise also around Taiwan, just at the same time you've got uh, Chairman Menendez and Lindsey Graham and others uh, on a congressional delegation visit to Taiwan to try to uh, bolster U.S.-Taiwan cooperation. China's rattling the sabers there again. Meanwhile, U.S. is working with all of our allies. So we've had the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, in Darwin and Canberra. Um, I just mentioned the Solomon Islands visit this coming week. We just finished the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State 2 plus 2 uh, meeting with India, where we've, I think, clearly shown that regardless of India's stance on Russia and Ukraine, uh, we're moving ahead on China with the big Malabar exercise coming up again this year, high-end exercises. Uh, Japan is at the crossroads with its new national security strategy and defense guidelines, and we're focusing on very much on upgrading that dialogue, and, and President uh, Biden will be there next uh, month uh, for the Quad meeting and for meeting with Japan and with Korea. Uh, President-elect Yoon in Korea wants to cooperate with Japan, and he's saying this is he's optimistic we're going to have trilateral cooperation, Japan, South Korea, U.S., which is the first time we've heard that from a South Korean leader anytime. And finally, uh, on North Korea, um, today is the Day of the Sun, the 110th anniversary of the birth of Kim Il-sung, the founder of, of North Korea. We expected a military parade, possibly fireworks. No parade, uh, but watch this space, 25 April, the anniversary of the Korean People's Army, uh, we're now expecting potentially that could be the day for fireworks and a military parade. 
And a word from our sponsors. Our technology coverage is sponsored by GM Defense and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Uh, Patrick, uh, let me ask you uh, about India, right? I mean, I understand it's a quad nation. It's very, very important. Uh, Bush administration and President Bush deserves a lot of credit for the vision to bring India and the United States closer, um, obviously, uh, over uh, China. And at the time was pushing on an open door, right? Senior Indian officials would talk to you that they don't spend a lot of their bandwidth on Pakistan. All their bandwidth was spent on, on, on China. But if you have India fence straddling the way it is, and also on democracy backsliding the way that it is under Narendra Modi, how good a strategic partner is India ultimately? And do folks need to be rethinking this because it is seen by some as an alliance. And India is always very clear to point out it does not have alliances, right? What, where, where are we and what are, what's the messaging it sends, um, especially at a time, for example, France wants to play a much, much more prominent role regionally and with good reason, right? Two million uh, French uh, live in the region or so. I may, if I'm, if I'm wrong, I will correct myself next week. But sort of what's the sense on India where we are? And Dove, really quickly want to get your sense uh, on this as well, because I know time is short and you've got to uh, pull the ejection handle. Go, go ahead, Patrick, and then Dove. Sure. Just three quick points on that, uh, Vaga. One, I mean, India, United States have a growing strategic and defense partnership. It's not an alliance, but that alignment is going to grow and it's going to grow because it needs to be a counterweight to China's emerging threat. Secondly, Russia is part of India's non-alignment strategy against China. Um, so if you think about uh, the need for Russia, it is partly a counterweight, even though Russia and China are aligned at the moment very closely. The future, India thinks, you know, there's an interest there for uh, Russia to be another counterweight against China from India's perspective. But thirdly, um, countries like France, South Korea, um, other allies and partners of the United States but want to work very closely with India and are working closely with India, including Japan in terms of investment. Um, and so uh, building up India's network, even as a non-aligned country uh, with other like-minded allies and partners of the United States is ultimately going in the same direction strategically as a long-term counterweight to China's potential malign behavior in the Indo-Pacific. Dove, uh, your, your sense on this, uh, because I know, unfortunately, uh, it is uh, Passover and you're going to be breaking off here in a moment. But go ahead. Yeah, uh, well, I, I'm totally with Patrick. Let me just give you one other example that uh, in many, way, many ways proves his point. Um, Finland and Sweden are non-aligned. And yet look how closely we in particular and NATO in general work with both of these countries. That wasn't a given. That wasn't even the case 15 years ago or even 10 years ago. And so if we could get a relationship with India like the one we currently have with Finland and Sweden, um, India could still be formally non-aligned. It could still have decent relations with Russia. Uh, and yet it would be a tremendous advance for us and frankly for India as well. Um, I uh, not, not to channel, you guys already know this, but not to channel my Finnish and Swedish friends, uh, Carl Bildt being one of them would point out that actually the non-aligned uh, or neutral uh, tendencies in both of these countries evaporated when we became 
EU members. Uh, and, and that sort of sense of neutrality uh, ended at, at that point, even though I think there is uh, still a tendency of both uh, to regard, uh, well, to well, use the word ally less and partner more. Well, you were yes, saying that. Yes and no. I mean, uh, Carl's an old friend and, and he's he's obviously got a viewpoint. Remember, he's wanted uh, to Sweden to join NATO for some time. Uh, but if you actually look at the polls and we've talked about this earlier, Jim mentioned this earlier, um, they have skyrocketed since the Ukraine uh, war. Uh, but if you looked at the same polls in Finland and Sweden 10 years ago, Right. Uh, it wouldn't be anything like what it is today. And of course, they were both in the EU at that time. So I would simply reiterate and say we have a fa fabulous relationship with these non-aligned uh, friends. And if India were like that, that would be great. Um, Dove, let me just ask you uh, very quickly, because the rest of us will discuss this uh, in uh, quick order. Uh, chemical weapons. There is uh, a suggestion that the Russians may have used them uh, in Mariupol. Uh, we don't have any confirmation at this point of it. What's at stake uh, in your mind, right? As we were going back and forth, you said, hey, good on the administration for doing what it's doing. But if we end up in a position where chemical weapons use has happened, and the president has said that that would be a, a, a dangerous line that's crossed, that that's problematic. What do you understand about where we are and how does the United States uh, and its allies need to respond in the event that the Russians have done this? Because there is a widespread expectation he was going to use chemical at the very least, if not nuclear weapons at the very most. Well, uh, uh, this goes back to the Obama red line in Syria. The one thing that we simply cannot do is ignore it. If, if we were to ignore this, then the entire Western support for uh, Ukraine collapses. The Europeans will say, why should we put any sanctions at all on the Russians? You guys, you Americans seem to be looking the other way again. You're not really as reliable as you say. You don't walk the walk. You, you just talk the talk. Uh, what we would have to do as a minimum is cut off any kind of economic relationship with Russia. That would be for Europe. That would be for us. Uh, there are allegations we're still importing some oil. It's not clear to me that it's true, but we would have to cut everything off uh, if we didn't want to actually take military action, which I think uh, nobody would want. But Russia would have to see that the price of chemical of using chemical weapons is horrendous. And unless something like that is done, we're going to have a very serious problem with our credibility. Dove, hope you and the entire Zakheim family have a very, very happy Passover uh, and look forward to welcoming you back on the program next week. Thanks so much. Thanks to all of you for happy Easter. And again, Ramadan Karim for our Muslim friends. Take care. Um, Chris, let me uh, bring you uh, into the conversation uh, at this uh, point. And thanks for being uh, so, so patient. Uh, first, uh, a messaging question uh, to you. How is the administration doing on messaging? Uh, and then the second question is, are we, you know, you, you are trying to track um, the, you know, always the nuance of what happens because your adversary always has a vote. And in this case, the adversary is Vladimir Putin. Um, and whether we've done enough thinking, and I want to get Jim and Patrick's take on this as well, Russia at some point is going to have to respond. I mean, part of Russia's chi is, uh, I don't care, Right. The thing that terrifies everybody is we in the West actually want to minimize enemy as well as our own casualties, whereas Putin is demonstrating every day he does not care. He does not care publicly 
that he just lost his flagship. Well, it was an old ship anyway, uh, for example. Um, you know, wh wh where is the messaging going? And what are your concerns about what the next steps of this will be? Because even if Putin's threats ring the same as his past threats, at some point he may act on them, right? I mean, this is an ambiguity strategy. Well, I told you a hundred times I would do it. And strangely, he does have a tendency of doing stuff, right? Messaging and then and then your sense on where we are with the Russians and, and whether you know we we triple down not and what does it look like and what do we have to do before we do it, right? You also have to prepare the American people. The the biggest problem is. Viktor Orban is not preparing his people, just like I think Olaf Scholz is not doing as good of a job preparing his people for the need for change, right, uh, would, would be part of it. Although I want to get Jim's take on that. Go ahead. Thanks, Vago. I, I think that the uh, administration is putting a considerable amount of effort into um, its messaging campaign and making sure that what we are communicating to um, the, the Russians, what, are, what we're communicating to the Ukrainians, our European allies, and then here in the domestic audience is appropriately connected, but also unique. Um, in order to um, satisfy and reach those particular audiences. The, the problem is, is that um, I think, especially in times like this, um, the advantage of messaging, if you will, kind of goes to the autocrat, right? I mean, because they don't have the... Um, uh, the high standard of truth that um, that democracies and uh, you know what Western governments in this case uh, ha have to deal with. So we are certainly doing better than um, than a lot of people expected. Are we doing enough? Uh, I don't know that you can ever do enough, but I feel good that the administration is really focused on it. That they're sharing as much information as they can as a way of countering uh, Russian propaganda as a way of amplifying what um, they are hearing and seeing out of Ukraine and doing um, as much as they can to make this president, uh, make it known to the American people um, how much time and how much effort this American president is putting into this crisis and why it matters to them. To me, that's the biggest part at home is that the American people understand why this matters to them and that they don't go off into spring and summer and all the things that we talked about last week that tend to distract a domestic audience as they lead into the 22 elections. Uh, the Biden team, while they're messaging uh, to Europe and to the Russians, need to make sure that um, that American audience doesn't become disconnected, both from a practical standpoint as they look to uh, spend more money, but also from a political standpoint as they look to be um, relevant uh, in, in 22. Now, in terms of the Russians, um, you and I have talked uh, really throughout the last couple of weeks. Um, at what point does Russia become even more dangerous um, as their, uh, you know, as their campaign in Ukraine becomes more bogged down, um, as uh, they suffer public uh, embarrassment after public embarrassment as their ability to pull levers and figure a way to end this, um, you, you know, in a way that is safe space, but also, you know, they can declare some sort of victory as those things go away. Um, what is the desperation level that is being felt in Moscow and whether that, whether that is through, um, you, you know, whether that ups the chances of a cyber attack, whether it ups the chances of uh, chemical weapons and God forbid, you, you know, uh, tactical or battlefield nuclear weapons. 
um, that that's where my concern is. I mean, I think that the West is doing the best to the point that that Jim made earlier in the podcast. Um, the question is, is what does that the best effort of the the West? What does that force Russia to do? Um, and and how do we then respond? Let me ask one. You know, we, we've got a naval officer uh, here. Uh, how big of a deal was the loss of the Moskva? from your standpoint, right? Hit by apparently two Neptune missiles, Russians saying it was an ammunition handling, uh, uh, you know, error. Not sure that's a good look either. Uh, (laughs) Maybe more noble to say it got hit by a missile and sunk. So I would say there's two significant um, immediate lessons out of that. One is the um, sort of the PR and and you could and capability um, uh, hit that the Russians took w- with the uh, the sinking of the ship. H- how a a you know a supposed first or even second rate navy like the Russians could be hit by a subsonic missile when they you would think had to be expecting you know or at least be on some level of alert. How that could happen. Um, and they not be uh, prepared is mind-boggling. The second thing is the lesson that uh, the United States needs to take away from this, because if if the reports are true, that ship didn't sink as a direct result of the immediate attack. It sunk as they were trying to transit back to port to do um, some sort of uh, some sort of work. So this goes to Patrick's point at the very beginning of the show and the five things that we need to invest in. Um, in that logistics front is seagoing tugs and the ability to repair ships uh, at sea or away from their home port. I think for the U.S. Navy, that's the biggest lesson that we need to take away is, okay, yes, this ship was damaged, but it probably didn't have to sink if they would have had the right support equipment or the right um, way of working with that support equipment as they tried to bring it back in to get it repaired. Well, I mean, right. I mean, we we um, have another. Uh, everybody on this show has uh, some form of navy background. Uh, b- both uh, Patrick uh, as as well as uh, as Jim. Um, right. Every everybody is a firefighter on a ship, and you're a damage controlman. Right. At the end of the day, uh, and that's not abundantly clear whether or not Russian sailors have that same kind of approach uh, to damage control. Jim, uh, you've got to go, but I wanted to uh, very quickly kind of get your your take. On, on Putin, what's next? What's a causus belli? And, and how does the administration need to navigate everything from conventional, from chemical, potential chemical weapons use all the way over to what's n- next? Uh, because there is this sense that the European coalition, even though you say will hang tough and likely to hang tougher and probably hang even tougher if we have a nuclear or chemical weapons use. Uh, on the other hand, right, Putin is trying to do everything he can to use each one of these as wedge issues to break Europeans off from from us. How do we need to think about it? And do we need to worry about crossing any line with them at this point or basically not since he's the one crossing a line with us? Well, I think we have to I I think this is going to be a great leadership challenge for Biden. Um, His team, I think, has learned a lot over the past, uh, certainly during this crisis, but over the past year as well. I think they saw last year how communications in relation with allies is not done. Uh, Now I think they're smarter, which is good, Um, but it's going to just they're going to have to redouble their effort to keep the alliance together. As Dove said, you know, the Hungarians uh, particularly, and they could very well uh, cause trouble in terms of bringing Sweden and Finland in. We don't know. So it's going to have to be Biden working uh, with his counterparts 
the SecGen as well. Uh, this is going to be uh, dealing with the Russian uh, wedge that you point out is very real. Uh, and, uh, and the allies would be more and more susceptible as the economic pressures increase, and particularly when it comes to energy. And, you're gonna, and as we were saying, you're all, the first uh, big cracks I think you're going to see probably in Germany. So, uh, so we're going to have to depend on uh, uh, Biden to just work this overtime, and that takes away time to, for other things. And that's a, that's a real pity. And on chemical weapons? How important is it to prevent another red line moment? I, I, I can't say anything more than what uh, Dove said. It's critical. Uh, they're going to and they're working it right now. I know they've got these tiger teams working on what's the response to a use of chemical. So um, I, I know they're going to come up with things. Uh, but uh, uh, and there's some things we could do, particularly in the provision of more advanced weaponry than we've been doing in the past. I mean, there's a lot of things, but, but we can't hesitate. They can't be a stutter. We've got to immediately respond. Uh, Jim, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Hope uh, you and yours there in sunny Paris have a wonderful Easter. Thanks for joining us. Patrick, I want to give uh, you uh, one bite uh, at this apple uh, before we part uh, in terms of how to uh, handle Putin, how seriously to take his threats, but also more importantly on uh, the question of possible chemical weapons use as uh, right, the people we heard about the red line uh, not enforced was actually folks in Asia uh, at the time that it, it happened. Well, Vago, um, I think Putin's tolerance for savage war, for suffering, um, his lack of uh, scruples from our perspective uh, are well documented, and we need to take that into account. That's why CI Director Bill Burns keeps warning that even a demonstration of a tactical nuclear weapon remains a possibility, even though the CIA has not seen direct evidence of that. So whether it's uh, the chemical weapon use, which is more plausible, or even a tactical nuclear demonstration strike, all of that is plausible under Putin. And yet it's not a matter of fear. It's a matter of uh, preparation. And it sounds like the administration is working with allies to prepare for the possible use. And it's going to undertake the kind of action that I think Dove and, and Jim are alluding to, which is a you know, strong, long-term, complete economic cutoff of the energy uh, dependence on Russia. That is going to take time, especially for allies and partners. But I think that'll be the direction in which the U.S. keeps pushing and will have uh, a lot of unity uh, over time to put pressure on Moscow so that, again, um, aggression in Ukraine does not prevail, does not pay. Uh, and that includes uh, the use of uh, WMD. Patrick and Chris, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Hope you too and yours have uh, a very happy Easter. And to our audience, we hope that everybody has a very happy Passover, a very happy Easter, and a great uh, Ramadan uh, celebration. Thanks so very much. Uh, hope you guys have uh, a terrific weekend, a terrific holiday, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.